Welcome to Top 5, a show where we categorize, rank, compare, and stratify everything. From cars to gadgets to TV shows to movies. Stuff that's hot and stuff that's not nearly as interesting. It's Top 5. This week on the show, Second Bananas. No, not that second helping that you had at breakfast this morning. Second Bananas. Matthew, please go into depth. A second banana, if you will, is basically that second tier or, you know, additional character. Let's say you were going to look at Top Cat, the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. I forget his name. I think it's Benny, his little his Yeah, little Benny buddy. the Ball. Yeah, Benny the Ball is his pal. Benny would be the second banana of Top Cat. Barney Rubble would be the second banana of, you know, the thing. So it's basically, it's not your primary character, but it's certainly not like, you know, Gunther from Friends. It's somebody who's important, not the most important, but often the people who get the best lines and get the best moments where they're all like, zing! And they don't always have to be, I mean, when you look at it, typically they're looked at as the funny man. They don't always have to be the funny man. Mm-hmm. So we're going to look at that exactly. this week in Top 5. Uh, this was Matthew's pick, so he's going to go last. Yep. Rodrigo, why don't you go first this week, and I'll go in the middle, and we'll uh, hit Matthew on the on the swing around there. On the head. Okay. <laughs> so my number five is a character who is on this list, not necessarily because I really like the character, but because the character is absolutely necessary if an episode of the show is ever going to end and have any sort of resolution. Um, this is a great show. I really like it. Um, I'm talking, of course, about Penny from Inspector Gadget. <laughs> because in order for Inspector Gadget's hijinks to uh, to happen, you still need someone actually trying to solve the crime. <laughs> right. Right. So that's that's where Penny comes in. So as a as a go as a go facil- gadget testicular perforator. Yes. So as a as a facilitator. For everything else that happens in Inspector Gadget that's actually funny uh, or interesting, Penny really, really is the workhorse of the show. Mm. Excellent. For me, uh, my number five, and a show that was part of must-see TV from, uh, from the uh, early 90s, mid-90s, and even before. I mean, even Surf the 80s. Nazis must die? Yes, that's it. I'm talking about Cheers. And the resident bar know-it-all, Clifford Clavin. <laughs> it's Mr. Clavin's dream board. The guy that uh, you just love to hate. The guy that's the know-it-all. The guy that uh, every time you say something has to pipe in with his own comment and tell, of course, uh, Carla, <laughs> the, 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 the evil bar waitress, would shut him down. Off in the butt of a, a lot of jokes. What's really interesting is when... Um, uh, John Ratzenberger went into audition for the role. He actually auditioned for the Norm Peterson role uh, that, uh, you know, the heavyset friend that's the the companion of, of Cliff. Uh, he didn't get it. They said he, mm-hmm. his character just didn't work in the role of Norm, but they liked him as an actor. And he said, well, you know what you guys need is the bar know-it-all. And they're like, well, give us an example of what you mean. And he improvised a lot of dialogue uh, for mm-hmm. the Cliff Clavin character. And they said, sold, done. And yeah. became a staple, became one of the main characters in Cheers, even though he wasn't the central character, yeah. but certainly the one that you would tune in for just to get a laugh. Yeah. You know, uh, gender differences are there in the in the very genes, uh, Normie. 
the the letters DNA actually stand for dames are not aggressive. People who have not been in my kitchen. <laughs> Matthew, what's your number five? There's your African garden turnip. My number five is the funny man, the quintessential funny man, perhaps one of the funniest men ever. Um, I actually, and this is something that many people don't necessarily know because I don't necessarily bring it up. I grew up with my grandmother and my grandfather, which means I know a lot about things that are about 30 years older than I should growing up in the 70s. And one of our family rituals was we would sit down in front of the giant TV set that was also, you know, a great big credenza, and we would watch The Carol Burnett Show. And every week on The Carol Burnett Show, you'd get a moment where one of the background players would come out, and uh, there's, there's one particular one that's hysterical where they're talking about uh, the zoo. And he's like, I saw these Siamese elephants once. They was joined at the trunk, and at that point, everybody else on set is giggling. Right. And so to cover that they're giggling, he's like, they couldn't even, they couldn't even go, <laughs> they just went, snorkel. <laughs> Tim Conway, the one of the funniest men ever, and uh, it got to a point on that show where it was clear that he and Harvey Corman were trying to one-up each other and make the other one break, and Tim invariably got Harvey to just break. And at one point, Harvey was in tears. Tim was playing a character in a, uh, a laundry. And at one point, he went off stage, and he came back out, and he was hanging on the little laundry thing that pulls the clothes around. And you see Harvey Corman just fall, fall over laughing, tears in his eyes, and Tim's just like, Aah! Tim Conway, one of the greatest second bananas of all time. He also voiced the Weeper in uh, Batman the Brave and the Bold, mm -hmm. as a second banana to the Joker. Yep. Hysterical. Hysterical. That whole episode is great. Very good. That's how we kicked it off, listeners. I mean, if that's how we're kicking it off, how are yep. we going to wind up at the at the very top of the list? We're making our way there, know, Rodrigo, right? with number four. Number four, number four. Number four. All right, number four is going to be a, a pretty drastic d uh, departure from... My yes, from it, it is from Tim Conway cool. and from my number five as well. Um, I know that you two are, but I don't know who uh, if anybody in our audience uh, would be familiar with a movie called A Boy and His Dog. Oh yeah, uh -huh. and that movie is not as nice as the title would imply. If you actually <laughs> if you look at the movie poster, it yeah. has it has a nuclear explosion. Yeah, it does. Post-apocalyptic yeah, tale of a boy and his yes. dog. Yes. Telepathic or could um, actually talk. I couldn't remember. Yeah, telepathic dog named Blood, and that is my number four. Um, Vic is the uh, main character, um, uh, but he's uh, he was born after the apocalypse. His parents are dead. He's not educated, but he hangs out with a telepathic dog named Blood, who is very educated, very smart, uh, knows a lot of things about what what was going on before the apocalypse, which shouldn't have happened, really. Right. You know, dogs don't live that long. Um, but who knows? He's a telepathic dog already. He could be an ancient telepathic <laughs> dog. Who knows? Um. The relationship between these two is really weird and extra weird because of how sweet it is. Just because they're they're clearly very good friends. 
even though they are very unlikely friends who have been brought together by what is happening. Um, this is not a nice movie. It's no. a good, I think it's a good movie. It's a fun movie, but it is not a nice movie. It, there's a lot of weird stuff and unsettling stuff that happens in this movie. But through it all, blood is always there with a quip mm-hmm. or with actual helpful information to get our hero through uh, through what is, you know, the, the very violent world that they live in. So number four for me, blood from a boy and his dog. Very good choice there, Rodrigo. For me, number four is is kind of an obvious choice. I think a lot of people would probably shout this out uh, right away. Uh, here on Sir one Nazis hand, must die. that's right. We have James T. Kirk, who is the captain of the Starship Enterprise. He's brash and he's bold and he makes decisions without really thinking too much about it. And then on the other hand, and he pauses at the most dramatically appropriate times. And then on the other hand, you have his science officer, first officer, very calculating, very methodical, very thoughtful in everything that he does until, what is it, Pomfar occurs, and then he goes insane. I am, of course, talking about Spock. What a great character Spock is. Uh, Just almost the exact opposite of what Kirk's character is. But at the same time, he's also a great... uh, not a foil, but he's also a, a, a great uh, butt of all jokes for Leonard McCoy. You know, the third part of that uh, that uh, trinity of characters on that show. It's a triune, if you will. Yes. I like the character. I, I, I think this is one of the first times that we may have seen a uh, half Vulcan, a half human appear on television, of course. Uh, but the way that people just yeah, really took to him. Because segregation was really rough back yeah, then. The it was. Vulcans could not get roles until the late 1960s. You didn't you, and, you, know, you know, they wouldn't see a lot of them in certain parts of Minneapolis. You didn't see a lot of regular alien characters on cars uh, on television. Sure, you may have had my, my mother as a car, but you didn't have somebody as interesting as Spock. And Spock certainly makes a great second banana on uh, Star Trek, the original series. Agreed. Agreed. Matthew number four. I, I think that a good second banana is one who counterpoints and accents the other character, which is why my number four is a perfect foil for his brother. Now, the, the, the brother, the primary catalyst of the tales which we have seen, um, is, is loud, he's coarse, he's crude. When we first see him, he's getting out of prison. And his dutiful brother has spent the last four years waiting for him to get out of prison. And, of course, where, you know, Jake is, is loud and brash, Elwood is silent mm-hmm. and, and methodical. And where Jake, you know, goes absolutely nuts on stage, Elwood takes his time and plays his, his harmonica before he goes absolutely nuts on stage. But there's a moment in the original Blues Brothers movie that explains to you why Elwood Blues is one of the greatest second bananas. They're on the run from the Illinois Nazis. <laughs> they're, they're doing 100 miles an hour up a broken stretch of freeway. The front of the car explodes, and Elwood says, completely deadpan. I think we just threw a rod. Yep. Jake's like, is that bad? Elwood's like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout that whole movie, you'll have moments where John Belushi goes, and then Dan Aykroyd as Elwood is just like, Yep. Yep. <laughs> El- 
El- Elwood has that moment. There's there's actually a particular song that we used to play all the time in college, um, where Dan as Elwood was singing, "Hey, rada, hey, rada, hey, blah, 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 hey, blah, 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 and he's just just complete nonsense gibberish throughout the whole song. And at the end of the song, he's like, what do you want for nothing? Elwood <laughs> Blues, one of the greatest second bananas of all time. Man looks good in a hat. He did back then. Maybe not so much now. Bow, bow. <laughs> Rub a biscuit. Rodrigo, over to you for our number three. My number three is a guy who doesn't get a lot of respect, um, largely because he looks just like his brother, except with a different color scheme. But he's a, a character that I've that I've always liked pri- uh, for for a very important reason. I'm talking about Luigi, uh, <laughs> Super Mario's um, brother, taller, skinnier, and I've more always- handsome brother. Yes. Yes, the hey, it's a me. It's a me, Luigi. They they voice him with kind of like a more nasal voice. Like Mario has a super high pitched voice. Yeah, right. and Luigi nowadays on the games is like, ah, oh, no, mama mia. <laughs> He's more adenoidal because he has that long neck. Yep. So, uh, I I I first encountered Luigi when my yeah. sister got old enough to start wanting to play <laughs> video games. Okay. So. And I started playing Luigi when that happened because my sister wanted to play video games. And I'm like, all right, well, we're going to play Mario Brothers. And the way this works is one of us plays. Then when that one loses, the other one gets to play. Right. And she was like, I want to play first. And I'm like, all right, you play first. And then I was like, what is this green Mario? All right, I'll play him. And, of course, in the first Mario Brothers, they're exactly the same. Later In, in later games, they've changed their stats so that they're not. Mm-hmm. Um but ever since then, I just always thought that Luigi was cool because he's the Mario brother that doesn't get as much attention. Now, Luigi has had some craptacular games oh, yes. that, he's, that he's headlined. Um, but despite that, uh, I've always found him really interesting. I like that in Smash Brothers, they, made, they literally made Luigi the can to, um, to Mario's Ryu. <laughs> where, um, where Mario's fire, yeah, where Mar- Mario's fireballs are stronger, but Luigi's uppercut is stronger. <laughs> I, I really like that. That was a that was a yeah. great little in joke. So yeah, I like Luigi. I think um, I like when he makes cameos in Mario games because it is kind of like this weird. You know, Mario doesn't talk. Neither one of them talk a lot, but Luigi's right. parts in Mario's games are always these like. Yeah. Weird little self-aware comic relief moments. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Luigi. When when I was in uh, high school, we had what was called a Play Choice Ten machine in the local pump and pantry, which was basically a, a Nintendo with a console around it. And there was a name for Luigi. And a few years ago, my daughter and I were playing Super Mario, and she went to daycare. She was maybe three, and. Um, she played Super Mario at daycare with the other children. She came home and she said to me, Daddy, did you know his name isn't really Loogie? <laughs> I'm like, yes, honey, uh, Daddy knew that. We had to have a talk with the boy the other day that it's pronounced cheeseburger, not cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. 
Number three for me. I, I'm pretty sure we've mentioned it in one of our major spoilers episodes. Certainly not one of the, uh, the top five yes. episodes. But Certainly not thousands and thousands of times repeatedly. <laughs> My favorite, probably the favorite television show of all time for me, stars a detective who was uh, accused of a crime, acquitted, the governor pardoned him, full pardon, doesn't have a record, who lives in a trailer down by the sea. SpongeBob <laughs> Squarepants! <laughs> <What's that? laughs> Gets into no end of trouble, but has an interesting char- uh, cast of characters around him. I'm talking about Jim Rockford and the Rockford Files, a movie, uh, a TV series that came out in the 70s, uh, ran basically a decade, and then uh, in the 90s had a series of made-for-TV movies uh, that came out. Uh, following this character, great character, but, you know, while Rockford kind of stumbles his way to not getting a paycheck week after week and episode after episode... The one character that just keeps popping up time and time again in that series, it even appeared in the pilot episode, uh, is Evelyn Angel Martin, a former convict that served time with Rockford at San Quentin, now works for his brother's uh, newspaper that's never named, but it is in Los Angeles, so there's only a couple of newspapers that it could be. And The Daily Planet. He's always got a scheme going on. He is a thief, he's a, uh, a con artist, and he's always getting Jim Rockford in trouble. He's there specifically for comic relief, but boy, when things start getting serious, Angel Martin is the first one to run. Jimmy, Jimmy, help me, Jimmy, save me, Jimmy. I just love Evelyn Martin's character, and um, he's really a great second banana. Nice. Yeah, if you haven't, I'm, I'm watching the Rockford Files again from the beginning. Now getting ready for season three. Yeah, it's a great show. Uh, hey, Jim. Uh, this is Bob down at the market. I would yeah, love... Bounced, uh, you going to come paid, or are we just going to leave it for the, the other ones? I uh, I would love to do a podcast where we just do commentary and discussion of each and every episode of The Rockford Files. I would love that. Kickstarter. Kickstarter, Kickstarter, <laughs> and I would really what? love to. I, I would love to interview James Garner. I think that would be awesome, uh, and do it before he passes because he's getting up there in age. He's got to be like eighty something. Steve, I'm just saying he's not. Is he seventy yeah. five? I know uh, Stephen J. Canal just passed away like a couple of years ago, and so that yeah, is but out Stephen of the J. Canal is considerably older too. James Garner, I want to born say in 1928. James, well, James Garner was... He's 83 right now. Oh, so yeah, he's 83. He's yep. older. Yep. Almost 84. Yep. Yikes. So my number four... Yes. Your number does three, not you have James Garner. Your number three, you mean? Yeah, that too. There you go. Sure. Does not have <laughs> James Garner. Doesn't. But it's it not does belong on this list. <laughs> another 70s detective. Uh-huh. And actually, this is this is this is um, really a cult classic. Came out in one of my later years of high school, but I did not become aware of this particular phenomenon until it became a phenomenon when I was actually in college. And it is a a, a tender love story of a young man of uh, of uh, you know poor birthing and and his noble young woman that he is in love with, and they are separated throughout the years, and at the end they get back together. And it turns out that in the ensuing 
time, the man has actually become the Dread Pirate Roberts. But that's not the point of the tale. That's not the best part of the tale. The best part of the tale comes when the second banana, who actually starts as the primary villain, or well, the secondary villain, shows up. And they have a big fight. And they're fighting, and, and he's like, you're very good. Ah, you are good too, but there's something you don't know. I am not left-handed. And Inigo Montoya nearly defeats one of the greatest fencers ever before he finds out that the Dread Pirate Roberts isn't left-handed either. And you know, we learn of, of Inigo's backstory, and we learn enough to know that he's driven by revenge for his father. And he's not really evil. He just fell in with a bad crowd. And at the moment where he finally confronts the man who murdered his father... You will cheer. I, I literally, the first time I saw this, I cheered out loud when Inigo Montoya actually got to the point where he, con- he finally confronted the man that murdered his father. Mm-hmm. Offer me whatever I want. You can have whatever you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Beautiful moment. Mandy Patinkin, not even a little bit Spanish, by the way. <laughs> but a really, really great minor character arc. The secondary character who steals the spotlight throughout mm-hmm. most of the film from very, very, very well-drawn and well-written characters steals the spotlight from Andre the Giant on fire. <laughs> and yeah. my friend, if you can yeah. steal the spotlight from that, you are definitely a character worthy of the number three slot. Excellent, excellent second banana. One of my favorite characters ever. And a great character to quote for no reason out of nowhere. I do not think that word means what you think it means. Steven. Rodrigo, let us talk about number two. All right. So my number two is... um, Number two, number two, number two. A character from a cartoon that I love dearly. That cartoon is called Gargoyles. (gasps) I was going to say Swat Cats. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember what the Swat Cats names even are. Um, Uh, Swatty and Caddy, I think. Samurai Pizza Cats. Yeah. Now the uh, so in Gargoyles you have the the Manhattan Clan are the are the the main characters are these awesome gargoyles, but they exist in Manhattan because they were brought there by this kind of evil businessman type uh, named uh, David Xanatos, and Xanatos has a uh, an assistant. And that assistant is named Owen. And Owen is an awesome character for a lot of reasons. Um, he is fiercely loyal to his boss. And he is um, a master martial artist. Uh, an incredibly intelligent person. But still pretty much chooses to be uh, a butler. For all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. Until eventually you find out. And spoiler alert. There's even more to Owen than that. As it turns out, Owen is a supernatural being who was so bored being an awesome supernatural fairy, basically jumping around time and space doing crazy things, that he's like, what is the one thing that I have not done? And he made himself into the most boring assistant ever, (laughs) basically because he had nothing better to do and then attached himself to, to David Xanathos. Uh, so for me, Owen slash Puck, um, who, by the way, is Oberon's second banana. So he's like, he's the, <laughs> he is the cool sidekick to two different guys, except he's also a different guy in both of those roles. <laughs> um, nice. So Puck, 
slash Owen from Gargoyles would be my number two. Excellent. Uh, number two for me, actually, you know, I was going to have Angel Martin appear as my number two. But I really started thinking about who are great actors that really do better as Second Bananas than the lead role. And the first one that came to mind was William H. Macy. And then I started thinking about all the great roles that William H. Macy has had as in a supporting uh, role, not just the front man. And the first one that came to mind was a movie that took place in the 1970s. I remember when this movie came out, I was living at the, in Atlanta at the time, and the person I was with, her father, said, oh, don't go see this terrible movie. It's terrible. It's disgusting. It has no redeeming value. And I'm like, what's the showtime? And I went and saw nice. Boogie Nights uh, starring Mark Wahlberg as a high school dropout who lives uh, the life of a porn star. He has a really big uh, penis that, that everybody wants to put him in, in the movies. And William H. Macy's character is an assistant director to the colonel, played by, um, um, uh, not the colonel, but... Uh, Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds' character. And Little Bill is his, is his name, and he just gets crapped on time and time again. He's actually married to a porn star who just has sex with anybody and everybody anywhere. In fact, at one party, he's there... And he sees a bunch of people gathered around in, in the basketball court. And he goes down there and there's this guy having sex with his wife. And people are just standing around and watching. He's like, what the heck are you doing? And she's like, quiet, you're, you're embarrassing me. And a guy standing next to little Bill says, yeah, little Bill, be quiet. You're embarrassing her. And he's just like totally dejected that she does not. I mean, she just uh, tosses him away, doesn't consider him a person. And all throughout the film, he's trying to be something better than an assistant director until finally at a New Year's Eve party uh, being held at Burt Reynolds' house. He's looking for his wife. It's about a minute or two before the clock strikes midnight going into 1980. He's looking for his wife, wants to celebrate the New Year, goes into a bedroom, finds her screwing around with another guy, walks out to his car, gets a gun, goes in, kills them both, and then as the party just freaks out, walks out in the middle of the living room, puts the gun to his head, and kills himself. It's just a real tragic oh. character. And if you haven't seen Boogie Nights, I mean, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of nudity. Uh, but you got the touch. Do, do, do. It you is just a power. really good. It's a good movie. It's got great performances from everything from Mark Wahlberg and Julianne Moore and Burt Reynolds and Don Cheadle and John C. Riley And, of course, William H. Macy as this character. Yeah, as Heather Graham. Uh, uh, William H. Macy is Little Bill. Plays a great is, second is banana. Is Philip Seymour Hoffman in that? Yes, he is. He Philip plays Seymour the, Hoffman is not, is he? No, no. He Philip Seymour Hoffman is indeed. John C. He plays Riley. the uh, John C. Riley's in it. Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a uh, an like an assistant uh, on the set who is gay and falls in love with Mark Wahlberg's character, and he does oh, a fantastic right. I, yeah. job. Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley are the same character in my yeah, mind. Yeah, that's that's exactly the thing is <laughs> because of their names, I get them confused. And that yeah. is like the one movie where I can confidently say that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in that movie or yes. John C. Riley is in yes. that movie. Yes, they're both in there. John C. Riley plays Mark Wahlberg's um, buddy, partner in crime, mm -hmm. and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman right. kind of plays the tag along. Who also, if you were talking about Second Bananas, a great Second Banana in that movie as well because he's always wanting to be, he's kind of like that little puppy going, hey, 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 notice me, notice me. And then when he tries to assert himself, he just fails miserably. 
Um, and so, yep. yeah, we've had some very comedic characters on this list, but I think William H. Macy as Little Bill is really a great, tragic second banana. So there you go. Matthew, over to you. Is this my number three? This is your number two. Math is hard. Let's go shopping. My number two. We've talked about the 1970s, and Stephen briefly talked about, you know, Rockford in the context of the 1970s. But the 1970s were a time of great ennui. The 1970s were a time of spiritual uh, emptiness and, and smiley faces and things that didn't have necessarily a whole lot of soul. You know, it, it was a decade when you could, you, you could become a pop star by having a drum machine and a big butt. But in 1977, one of the greatest movies of the decade, possibly one of the better movies of all time, came out. And in that film, we met a fascinating, awesome, super awesome, really cool 70s dude with a big mustache and a cool hat and a really awesome car. But his pal, his second banana, kind of got the shaft. Throughout this film, Bo Darville, the bandit, is racing through a car and he gets a girl and he gets to, you know, jump over things and crash through things and fly around and fight against Jackie Gleason and chew the scenery. And, and Cletus Snow, the snowman, just kind of gets to, to play sounding board and occasionally get a good joke in with his dog, Fred. But there's a point at the end of the movie, Smokey and the Bandit, where the police have finally captured them. They are, they are surrounded on all sides. There's a helicopter on top. The policemen are there. There's no way that they are going to finish their bet and deliver 400 cases of Coors in 28 hours to Big Enos and Little Enos. And finally, the bandit gets on the radio. He says, it's over. It's over, son. I'll let them take me in. They don't even know who Cletus Snow is. And they cut to Jerry Reed in the truck, and Cletus Snow gets this look on his face, and he says, is that so? Well, let's just introduce him to the boy. And Cletus puts, puts the pedal down on his enormous truck and runs, literally runs through a barricade and through a steel door and through a bunch of police cars, <laughs> crashing his way onto the track, nearly killing 30,000 people. It's an awesome moment. Winning the bet, winning them $80,000. And also, you know, getting to go home so that his wife won't divorce him. But throughout that whole movie, you know, Cletus gets beat up. Cletus takes the end of it. But it's Cletus who's the hero and the snowman. And Fred, you got to have Fred, because even a second banana needs a second banana to play off. The snowman is the reason why I love that movie. Jerry Reed reminds me of my mother's second husband. And I've always, you know, thought that it's pretty awesome. Someday I'm going to be a crazy Alabama kind of uh, Cajun man. And that's how I'm going to talk. Well, at least you got that's the crazy two. talk part right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Second banana is our topic right. this week on Second top banana. five. We've run through four uh, or, of them. As, as they say in Spain, platano numero dos. We've run through four of them, Rodrigo. It is now time to reveal our number ones. Number one, number one, number one. Okay. My number one is a, a character... That was that was really only the second banana because of the circumstances around the 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 work that uh, that he was in um, in the sixties, uh, and I am gonna be talking about the TV version of it in the sixties. 
it would have been very unlikely to find a TV show that had the main character in the United States that had the main character not be white. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Green Hornet got pretty close. I'm yeah. talking, of course, about Cato from the Green Hornet, played by the incomparable Bruce Lee. Um, oftentimes, by far, the most interesting thing that was going on in the show was Cato. Right. Um, everything else was just kind of like not Batman. But Cato <laughs> was the thing about that show that really set it apart from anything else on TV. Um, it's it, apparently, uh, and I don't know how, uh, how true the source is on this, but apparently when the Green Hornet was broadcast in Asia, it was the Cato show and it was either re-edited or dubbed in such a way that it sounded like Cato was in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cato was definitely a second banana that was always, or, or was in a show that was always in mortal danger of having the second, the, the sidekick overshadow the main character. Um, I haven't seen the Seth Rogen movie, but I think that, uh, as I understand it, they play with that. The fact that Cato is, in fact, a total badass, like way more badass than the Green Hornet. Right. Um, but in the old Green Hornet, it also, in a, because within the show, they don't really touch on it, but... In, in the in the meta aspect of it, you see a man who is way better at everything than his boss, but his boss still pretty much gets all the credit. Um, and it kind of uh, creates this sad situation for Cato, but it, it's not really explored within the show. It's only when you stop to think about it, it's like, huh, the Green Hornet punched one guy in that episode and Cato... <laughs> punched five guys right. as he was basically doing a backflip off the stairs. Right. Thanks, Kato. Ah, yes. good Thank one. you, Kato. Good one. Bring good the car one, around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, my number one was right off, right off the bat. I mean, a lot of people might think that he was, he was the lead, but really when you think of comedy duos, you've got the straight man and then you've got the comedian. You've got the guy delivering the jokes yeah, and, yeah. and being the fool and the stooge. And when I think of comedy duos and I think of that that comedy character, I instantly think of Lou Costello. Lou Costello, the the second banana in the Abbott and Costello uh, comedic duo that started way back in the 1920s and, and 1930s and just took comedy by storm, created some of the best routines that we've ever heard and seen including uh, Lou Costello's favorite uh, catchphrase, hey, I bet, uh, is, just, is just classic comedy. And, you know, if you've never heard the Who's on First routine, it's been uh, parodied, it's been spoofed a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this, the duo of Abbott and Costello is just fantastic. And Lou Costello plays the perfect uh, second banana. Um, unfortunately... Uh, in 1957, uh, Bud and Lou had to split up, not because of any kind of perceived um, uh, hatred between the two, but because they were having IRS issues. And the comedy duo had to split because of IRS issues, and they had to sell off a lot of their movies, the rights to a lot of their movies, to get themselves out of income tax mm. problems, which is really kind of bad. And, and mm. uh, Costello ended up dying of a heart attack in uh, 1959. 
uh, just before his 53rd birthday. And a lot of people know this guy. He's short. He's chubby. I mean, a lot of heavy set comedians owe their uh, ability to be considered uh, to Costello, you know, and and not the very first Stooge character, because, of course, Three Stooges were around before him. And, of course, uh, uh, um, uh, Hardy, um, what is it, Hardy and what's the other guy? Mm-hmm. Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. You know, you've had that. But Costello yeah. just made it work and made it work for a long time. And just so you know how good of, I mean, I don't know, you might want to not say that this is good, but that's just to show you what he, um, how seriously he took his job. Uh, he was out of work for six months in 1943 because he had an attack of a rheumatic fever. And he was scheduled to go on the uh, one of an NBC radio show in 1943, and people were just really anticipating uh, his return. Unfortunately, he got down to the NBC studio, got word that his son had died in the family pool. Hmm. And instead of canceling the show, which he knew millions of people were going to tune in and listen, he came up with the phrase, the show must go on, and went on that night and just did a stellar performance that people just love and remember. And he did it because he wow. said at the end of the show, wherever my son is tonight, he's listening. And it was only afterwards that he explained what was going on. And that's a, that's yeah. a really good guy. Lou Absolutely. Costello, that, oh, my God. number one, just a great guy. Yeah. And something that, 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 uh, Lou did that very few people didn't in vaudeville in the burlesque shows. He never worked blue, right? Lou right. was Lou did not go for that. And you know today you know, it's it's kind of even considered to be you know archaic to say they don't curse or they don't do the off color humor. Right. But he managed to be funny in a setting where the off color humor was what you did to be funny. Right. He broke the vaudeville mold, which is, you know, particularly ridiculously awesome. And and he did a I mean and he did now, a lot see, of things to he did a lot of things to uh turn what could be risque humor into a um kind of a slapstick joke. You know, when the pretty girl when he sees the pretty exactly. girl and he's like you know, he's getting kinda kind of kind of when he's when he's doing that and getting all worked up. I mean, he's just a great just a yeah. great comedian. I I mean Yep. Ever since a young age, Abbott and Costello watching their movie reruns as a young kid, going in and learning about their history growing up. Um, just I've always admired him as an actor and really think that as yeah. second bananas go, he's the tops. Yeah. So, Matthew, That's it's all to down try. to you. Oh, I'm sure you can. But do I'm going to try. I'm sure you can. Oh, do I it. can't because I'm awesome. I am awesome. <laughs> My number one second banana is a little bit unique in that. She was not the first second banana on her program, in her universe. She was not the first second banana to her main character. And fascinatingly, her main character started out as the original second banana. But 40 years later, Mrs. Emma Peel is the thing that people remember about uh, ITV's The Avengers. 
Mm-hmm. Emma Peel did not start on that show. She didn't come into that program until like six years into its run. And it ran for a couple of years after Emma left the show. But right. if you ask somebody, hey, what's the Avengers about? They'll tell you it's a guy in a bowler hat and a girl in a tight suit. Mm-hmm. And what's really fascinating about Emma Peel in context is that it's 1963, 66, something like that. It's at a point in time where a lot of your heroines, your, your female characters, say, you know, the doctor's companions, people make the joke that they were hired for their ability to scream. Mrs. Peel was the muscle. Steed would go in and be like, oh, Mrs. Peel would, you know, use her judo. She would kick people in the face and she would do, you know, the role. And then she would turn around and she would make little droll remarks while she had tea. You know, she was uh, apparently a chemical genius. She was one of the first feminists that I'm aware of in television. And the fact that in a show that had already changed format three times, she stepped in, that character revitalized, changed the nature of that show, and made it to where, you know, decades later, people don't remember that she wasn't the original character. People don't remember that she wasn't in all of it, but they do remember her, and they remember her because she kicked butt, Mm -hmm. she looked really, really good in some of those tight outfits, and she was atypically awesome, atypically feminist, atypically above the top she was an action hero at a point in the 60s where the action the female action hero was a brand new thing mm-hmm. um honestly if you if you've ever read a comic book with the black widow yep you should turn to emma peel and say you're welcome yep there you go you know that's it's interesting you put a a, a female on the top of your list matthew we didn't have a lot of uh, we didn't mention i think she's the only one that we had on our list um gracie yep, allen I had penny on mine oh penny that's right yeah, uh, gracie allen uh, great second banana to George yep. Burns. Um, who else did yep. you guys have on your also ran list? I had uh, Jerry the Mouse. Mm, I had Chumley from second uh, bananas of Pawn all Wars or uh, uh, Pawn Stars. <laughs> I, oh, I thought you were going to Ed... say Tennessee Tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> Ed Norton was also there. Uh, you also put Chumley on, on that. Rodrigo, what about you? Pinky. C-3PO yeah, was good. on mine. Chandler Chandler Bing, mm-hmm. uh, the second half of the Joey and Chandler. Yeah. And the, you know, some of those Chandler Bing lines are really the only things about friends that haven't aged right. poorly. Right. Well, Watson. Uh, the the thing is, Holmes. some of those Chandler Bing lines are actually Joey making fun of Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Like people good remember on. them as Chandler's Peter lines, but they're not. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> That's I had true. Watson uh, on Randall? my list of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Randall. Uh, Donkey. Randall and Watson are actually the same character. Mm-hmm. Yep. Delmar Donkey. and Pete. Ron oh. Weasley. On account of we turned him into a horny toad. The Falcon. <laughs> Garth. Pete got yeah, turned into a horny toad. <laughs> Clyde the Orangutan. Oh, uh, Clyde is another good one. Uh, Chewbacca. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Chewbacca's good. Robin. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get a whole lot of that, but Robin, I mean, Robin started a cottage industry. Yeah. Everybody had a kid. There was Dusty, yep. and there was, uh, the, the best one was uh, the, the Black Terror sidekick was named Tim. That okay. was his superhero name, Tim. <laughs> Peter My Gabriel. superhero name is Tim. <laughs> Peter Gabriel. <laughs> Peter Gabriel, yeah. That's actually a good one. Uh, Sammy Hagar. Yeah. Ducky. 
Ducky. Oh, that was on this weekend too. Was it? Yeah. Oh, Pretty in Ducky. pink with Ducky. Yep. Yeah, where she should she should have picked Ducky, but Jake Ryan was such a tool. I know. Long duck dong. <laughs> the dong I need food. Top five video game songs was our topic last week, and we had some people write in. We had uh, Bruce came in and said uh, that the Metroid music from the original NES game, the NES Double Dragon, was his number four. His number one, uh, the Cutman level from the original Mega Man series. He had that on his uh, ringtone for several years, he says. Uh, Alexander had Super Mario Brothers, World of Warcraft theme, Halo theme, Shard from the Mirror's Edge, Mass Effect theme. Uh, Grace says a Donkey Kong Country, Secret of uh, Mana, uh, Legend of Zelda, The Ocarina of Time, Legend of Zelda, The Wind, uh, what is it, Wind Walker or Wind Waker? It's the Macarena. Wind Waker. Okay. And then uh, we also had, (laughs) basically, Gamma Fighter has all of his songs come from either Mega Man 2, well, his fifth place one comes from Mega Man 2, all the rest come from Mega Man 3. Mega Man 3. Bruce also did correctly identify my song that I didn't know the name of, but stuck with me as the theme from Vanguard that goes. That's Vanguard from 1983. All right, listeners, you have heard our top five. You have heard our also rans. It's time for you to head over to Majorspoilers.com and share your thoughts who are the best second bananas, in your opinion? And don't just give us a list. you got to give us a justification for why they're on your list. Why? Because everybody loves a list, and we do too. And next time, we're going to be talking about, check this out, things we wish we could afford. Things we wish we could afford next time on Top 5. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.